Kids Comics. And here are your hosts, Michael and Andrew Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Those levels look good. They don't feel very okay. I don't know whether it's good or not. Welcome back. It's been a whole month for you. <laughs> it's been less than 24 hours for us. It has. Uh, I love this peek behind the curtain stuff. We're, there, there is no curtain. There is no. We are very open. There is no curtain. We there are constantly, no proverbially flashing. So the problem with this is that every now and again, like yesterday, uh, sorry, the Christmas episode, <laughs> that'll be topical. We will talk about topical moments. And if we talk about topical moments in these episodes that we're about to do, right. they won't yeah, be topical yeah. by the time they come out. Well, it is the start of a brand new year. Yeah, uh, happy new year. was... So not hopefully, you know, nothing should have happened that was super topical. So, you know, at this point, the aliens won't have descended. Um, we we the won't have Comic Shop hasn't imploded. No, we won't have discovered light year travel. You know, none of these things would have happened at the point of this happening. It would be nice if any of that stuff happened. You know. But anyway. Prevaricating about the bush. <laughs> um, we're gonna look at an email and then we're gonna do what we're gonna do. And then we'll look at another email, and that's how it's going to work. So again, if that sounds like the kind of thing that you like, stick around. Uh, Michael Burley's emailed in. Okay. Hello. Hello. Early Marvel Madness. All oh, right, so it's about the what? early Marvel issues that we did. Right, okay. <laughs> Which for all these years ago. Well, it was last year. Well, Literally last year. <laughs> that's us. That... <laughs> Great show as always. Oh, you could just end there. <laughs> I'm going to do me. Well. Just grease our ego a bit. Move on with that's your it. Life. That's all we need. If we just get everyone sends an email going, good job. Yep. Great. Great job. Great job, Tim. Oh, nice, and by nice the way, Rick. we've bought you a coffee. <laughs> Something Michael said. That's you. Oh, no. What have I done now? Something Michael said really annoyed me <laughs> because he's such a prick. No, that's not what it said. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Close to the truth. <laughs> you <ever> know. Oh, no. <laughs> Something Michael said struck a chord with all oh, there you go, it's nice. We struck a chord isn't typically nice. I will say. And that's how the recent, well, the last 15 years at least, which is still recent from a certain point of view, popularity of Marvel's characters has created a generation of fans whose entire concept of who characters like Iron Man and Black Widow are bears little resemblance to those characters who were in the comics. Okay. And I'm fascinated by this. That's actually quite because everyone's come at the now the films. Yeah. Now Black Widow's a little bit closer to the comics version than you know Iron Man is. Yeah. Tony Stark wasn't Robert Downey Jr. before Robert Downey Jr. started playing Tony Stark. No. And the comics have made him into Robert Downey Jr. Which I'm not sure I like because when Bill Bixby was David Banner, the Hulk didn't change the comic to match the TV show. No, well, yeah, I suppose you can trace that back to Sam Jackson in the Ultimates, really, can't you? Yeah, where it was, yeah, they drew Sam Jackson instead of suing him. Sam Jackson said, "Oh, I'm in a comic." Yeah, which is nice. I wonder how Freddie Prince Jr. handled that. <laughs> Thought about that. I wonder why Simon Pegg never wanted to be a part of the boys. Yes. Oh, wait, oh right, is he it? Plays Huey's dad because he's now too old to play Huey. That's funny. Okay, so he right. Play, he plays okay. Huey's dad. The only problem was in the COVID filmed episode. He's literally phoning it in. 
Right, okay. But he's only in like two or three episodes, but he is in it. Right. So they have got him in it. Michael continued, because if you handed someone who only knows these characters from the movies, the first appearance of these characters, or even the first like 10 years of their existence, that person wouldn't recognise them at all. And I don't mean in the tastes and social mores have changed sense. I mean they're completely different characters. And I get that characters change and evolve, but these comics are still out there. And if you decided to read all of the Hulk which I have been slowly been doing, then the Hulk that existed in 1962 has little in common with the Hulk of 1972 or 1992 or 2022. And that messes with my head a little. So you can argue, though, that the Immortal Hulk did kind of take it back to that right. very, very, very early notion that the Hulk was a monster strip instead yeah. of a comic strip, a uh, superhero strip, sorry. So they do like go back and forth on this. Don't well, they? I also kind of feel like as well a lot of... People, a lot of fans and a lot of comic readers might be a lot happier to kind of follow creatives rather than the characters themselves because that probably might make it easier. Because obviously, mm -hmm. if you get five different writers writing the same character, you're going to end up with five different characters. And so it's, it's also it's, So it's probably better, easier, and more enjoyable to not follow the character because you're going to get multiple iterations. So you might you might not be happier because you'll be like, oh, I like this character, I like this character, oh, I don't like this character. But it's not the character changing, it's just the creator's it's the changing. the writer's yeah. And it goes to what we were talking about in the Christmas one about Batman, mm. about how Batman has slowly morphed into somebody who just punches mentally ill people yeah. in video games, as yeah. opposed to the very zen-like guy who studied meditation and yeah. all of that stuff that he was in the comics. Well, it goes back to my argument about the new 52 Superman as well. A lot of people didn't like what DC were doing with the new 52 with Superman, but having recently reread All-Star Superman with what Grant Morrison was doing, the problem wasn't Superman. The problem wasn't with the de-aging Superman or taking him out of the, the, the marriage. So when they did later on where they killed that Superman to then bring back the classic Superman, but still within the new 52 continuity. The problem wasn't with the character. The problem was how the creators were dealing with him. Mm -hmm. So it kind of felt weird that they were like, yeah, let's kill off the character. The character's the problem. Well, no, it's not. It's how you're writing the character mm -hmm. that's the problem. It's, yeah, it's the, the, new, the approach that the new 52 took in a lot of cases. Yeah. Which was very much the WBification of the DC universe. Oh, yeah wasn't it? Which obviously led to successful television shows. Yeah. So, you know, The Flash ran for, what, nine seasons? Arrow did ten seasons? Legend of Tomorrow did five? Supergirl did six? So they're yeah. not failures as shows. No. That's decent. And they've only really running. just ended, haven't they, the CW-verse? They've, they've only just ended The Flash. They all got kind of, they all got cancelled in the same year, I think, except The Flash, which got one more season to and wrap it Superman up. Superman and Lois has just been cancelled, hasn't Superman it? and Lois wasn't part of that. I thought it was. No. Oh, it's Superman and Lois has its own. Yeah, Tyler Hoechlin was in Supergirl and okay. Arrow and stuff like that, yeah. I think. Maybe maybe Supergirl and The Flash. I can't remember. I stopped right. watching them all. But the, the Tyler Hoechlin Superman that was in Superman and Lois was not the same guy. Okay. Because they made the corporate decision there that we're not going to deal with all that CW stuff because we'll have to keep having to explain, well, where's Supergirl? Right. Where's the Flash? And okay. all that stuff. They said, no, this is its own thing. Right. And I also think that that was born of the fact that they pre-sold four seasons of that TV show to overseas territories. Okay. And certainly in our case, the BBC bought it. Right. The BBC don't give a toss what goes on in the Flash or Batwoman. 
Right. So they, they, if they're going to buy a show, they want a show that stands alone. So they had to make it its own thing. So they had to make it its own thing. Or you get that thing that did happen over here, the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, right. where all of the shows were shown on Sky, except Batwoman, which was on E4, okay. because Gotham had done very well for them. So they bought that, right. And when Sky showed the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, they couldn't show the Batwoman episode. That's Okay. So... You know, so we're going back to the old six million dollar man buying it, woman being on different networks, Buffy and Angel being on different networks, kind of thing. Right. And ultimately, I think that shoots them in the foot when they are now relying on overseas sales or even overseas deals with streamers mm. to claw back some of the money from these things because syndication is not really a thing anymore. Yeah. Then if you're going to say, yeah, but you're going to miss an episode from this epoch making crossover, they're going to go, huh. <laughs> and not be bothered, are they? Right, yeah. So, so the, I think they made the right decision with Superman and Lois. Cause, okay. Because that's easily the better show with a lot of them, in my humble opinion. Uh, it's also, Michael continues, why I don't get overly bothered when people talk about these characters or get so much wrong. Does he mean us? <laughs> because they may have only watched the movies or read the more recent comics. I don't expect everyone to have read everything. It would be nice, not reasonable, but nice. I usually think, oh, all I've watched is the movies. That explains why they are so unbelievably off about something. Does that explain the, the Snyder? Oh, no, no. <laughs> Let's not go there. Then again, I've gotten more laid back in my old age. Great show. See, you could have opened with that. And we did open with that, didn't we? Take care. Looking forward to the next one. Mikey might be president, treasurer, and timekeeper of the gang post- gangbuster fan club. <laughs> is that going to be like, um, what was it? Flight yeah. of the Concord, Concords, right. where Murray does the meeting. Yeah. Right and there's there. only literally two people. <laughs> and it's um, Jermaine Clement. Jermaine, yeah. present. And the guy who's in Lord of the Rings, Brit, present. And they're like, why Why are we doing this? There's literally, but we've got to keep a record. <laughs> right, okay. I loved Murray. Murray was my favourite one in that show. But I suppose that's a good point about kind of separating the kind of character into those different kind of iterations. We've, we've discussed this before about uh invincible kind of like the separation between the show and the the comic it's like well we don't like what they were doing with this but that's fine it's got its fans we've got this version of it yeah i'm i'm not a big fan of that cat yeah i kind of bailed out halfway through season one i've never been back to it i don't know that season two's made any impact at all but maybe because i'm not interested in it i'm the... not seeing it yeah the algorithms aren't throwing it back at me because yeah. i'm not looking for anything invincible related well i think i saw like i've, I've obviously made no secret of my Distaste. Uh, deep infatuation with with invincible as a as a series having grown up with it and obviously that i'm self-aware enough to go well maybe that makes me a bit overly attached and protective of it but when i watched the show and i watched it i watched a couple of episodes i did want to give it a try but it's like well this doesn't feel like what i know and like but instead of you know dump on it or hate on it it's clearly got its fans it's clearly been a success this works for them it doesn't work for me i'll just not watch it and i've got my comics and that's fine yeah well, I also felt that it, it was in love with the violence too much. I think this goes to what we were talking about with The Walking Dead. Mm. It's the comic was showing what a real fight between superpowered people would look like. Yeah. Eyeballs and all that stuff. Yeah. But again, when we talked about The Walking Dead in the Christmas one, we mentioned comic book violence is different to violence depicted on screen. Yeah. Even when that violence is animated. Mm. 
and I felt even seeing it on screen, it felt like they were too loving in let's show a punch going right through somebody's face and pushing the brain out. Okay. And I'm like, okay. But then the guy, the producer guy did an interview where he said, no, we'll, we won't have any sex. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. So we're okay with punching people's brains out, but the very idea of seeing naked people, <laughs> let's run for the hills. I mean, this is nothing new. Surely we've had this conversation oh, before about how it's, violence is completely fine. Swearing is completely fine. But any kind of like, sexuality is is whoa, 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 no 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 well it's like the, that batman animated book i've got like, right. they have a list of everything they can't yeah, do you're like you're allowed three punches but four is too many yeah that kind of thing you're like joker can't kill but to permanently deform people that's perfectly okay yeah. and it's like who, who arbitrarily decides this stuff right yeah i mean if it's coming from we've done a lot of child psychology research and this is what we found fine yeah. But then the flip side of that is we've grown up with carry-on films and that kind of thing. Like, risque is a part yeah. of our nature. And yeah. Which is a shame because you miss out on great television. It is. It's quite interesting what flies and what doesn't yeah. in different territories. Like with Blue-Eyed Samurai. Blue-Eyed Samurai's got loads of sex and nudity in it. Mm. And all the violence that you could ever want. Yeah. So... Blue-Eyed Samurai is really good. Go and check it out. It's on <laughs> Netflix. I don't get paid for this. Uh, that's it. We'll We'll have another email in a bit. But for now, you have the con. I have. Oh, I have the bridge. Yeah, you do. You're in charge, man. Oh, this chair's quite comfy. I can see. Oh. The command right. chair. Stretch my legs out a little bit. <clears throat> it is the year 0079. Not 007. <laughs> Not 007. 0079. Uh, it's like... For 0069. Well, it's kind of like if you take 008, but kind of like cut a little bit off him, maybe like the side of his arm. Is that what happened to him? 007.9 of the Universal Century. A half century has passed since Earth began moving its burgeoning population into gigantic orbiting space colonies. A new home for mankind, where people are born and raised and die. Can I just... It was a home away from home. Place <laughs> The name of the place is Babylon 5. Deep Space 9? Okay. Deep Space 5. I mean, it does imply... Surely, but Deep Space 9 does imply... Well, there is a Deep Space, Space 5, five somewhere. somewhere. Babylon 5 implied there were four others. You get into the show, it's like... Yeah, Never saw really. them. Yeah. But you did, but... Nine months ago, the cluster of colonies furthest from Earth, called Side 3, proclaimed itself the Principality of Zeon and launched a war of independence against the Earth Federation. Initial fighting lasted over one month and saw both sides lose half their respective populations. People are horrified by the indescribable atrocities that had been committed in the name of independence. Eight months had passed since the rebellion began. They are at a stalemate. And with that, on the 7th of April 1979, Japanese audiences were introduced to Mobile Suit Gundam, created and directed by Yoshiyuki Tomino and animated and produced by Nippon Sunrise. Mobile Suit Gundam ran for 43 episodes and ended on January the 26th, 1980. Just like Stan Lee and Marvel wore the anti-war hearts on their sleeve throughout the Vietnam War, Tomino also used Gundam as his own anti-war outlet. Gundam throws our ragtag crew of children and civilians through what's called the One Year War, as they have to learn to become more than what they are to fight for the freedoms of both themselves and those they care about. 
all the while being surrounded by incompetent wannabes, family melodrama, and double crosses. The show isn't just a look into humanity's potential future, but also very closely resembles its past as well. Filled with allusions to colonialization, imperialism, Nazi Germany, fascism, uh, this helps create a sense of recognition. It's very easy to believe that the world of Gundam could exist. Well, for the most part, because it did. Heard with all of this, is also the show's introduction of new types later on into the series dealing into more existential themes. New types are humanity's next step in evolution. They believe that humans can never progress if they can't leave behind the past, and are so ashamed of humanity's greed and destruction of the earth that they do anything to lead us to our future, both for better and worse, leading to Gundam to still be relatively topical today. Because it's hard to believe now, over 40 years later, that the show would be anything other than a huge success, but the truth is it's far from it. The show was cancelled and its episode length of 50 was cut down to the aforementioned 43, but you know what was it that led to such a hugely ambitious and relatively well-received show being hurried along and just dropped? Well, as most who grew up watching cartoons throughout the 80s on either side of the Pacific would know, the lives and deaths of many a franchise was tied relatively closely to one thing, toys. Merchandise is where the real money's made. <laughs> See, in Japan, following the end of World War II, there was a huge boom in tin toy production that ran somewhat parallel to the success of children's cartoons such as Astro Boy and Mazinger Z. And to capitalise on this success, toy and cartoon companies would sign agreements in the late 60s that would pool their resources together and make a one-two punch of success. Gundam was the result of one such deal between the TV company Sunrise and the toy company Clover. At the time of Gundam's airing, there was a huge trend in anime to have super mecha, unrealistic and heavily stylized machines covered in flashy colors and had powers such as abilities to transform, all with the intention of selling more toys. For example, Gundam's contemporaries included the great Mazinger Z from the aforementioned Mazinger Z and the Getter Robo. The more elaborate and colorful the mech, essentially, the better. Gundam, however, strived to be different. Designed by Kunio Okawara, Gundam's mobile suits, as well as the titular Gundam itself, were built on the question of, well, what would the military actually use? And so started the real robot genre. But all these good intentions of genre subversion and practical mecha design wouldn't help the show. See, due to low sale figures, Clover pulled out of the deal and the episode count was cut, most likely due to the interesting interpretation that Clover would have when recreating the Gundam in toy form. Enter stage Bandai, a then up-and-coming toy company, now worldwide giant, who approached Sunrise with their idea for an easy-to-build model toy kit that would end up revolutionising the mecha industry as well as creating its own toy industry, Gunpla or rather, Gundam Plastic Model, was an easy-to-build toy that would cost fans only 300 yen, at the time $3, and both its low entry costs and its accuracy on the mecha's on-screen design would slowly but surely garner more and more success, until eventually Sunrise had enough popularity to leverage a new show, Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, and my personal favourite, and the rest of Gundam is history. 
original Gundam, as it would become to be known as, was reformatted then as a trilogy of theatrical movies which boasted a huge success, as did the sequel Char's Counter-Attack, which wrapped up the narrative threads of the television shows both Gundam, Zeta and Double Zeta. The Universal Century, the name given to the mainline entry's timeline, would have dozens of sequels and side stories, with personal favourites of mine being the 08th Mobile Squad, which is Let's Do Gundam in Vietnam, always a winner, War in the Pocket, a less-than-happy Christmas story about a child unknowingly bringing together a Xeon, the bad guys, and a Federation, the good guys, pilots into an almost Romeo and Juliet romance, and Stardust Memories, a prequel to Zeta Gundam that explores the themes of loyalty, and how maybe today's ally could be tomorrow's enemy. The franchise would also see several other self-contained shows within their own timelines. Concept artist Sid Mead from Blade Runner would take a stab at the Gundam with Turn A Gundam. Gundam Seed would become the face of the franchise in the mid-noughties, but Gundam arguably gained most of its worldwide success in the mid-90s, when Cartoon Network's young adult channel Toonami received distribution rights for mobile suit Gundam Wing, which also introduced the rest of the world outside of Japan to the franchise. The feature-length movie Gundam Wing Endless Waltz, which is also a Christmas film by the way, <laughs> would be Cartoon Network's second highest rated programme of all time at the time, coming just behind the English dub of Dragon Ball Z, and reruns of Wing on Toonami that aired around 1998 in the build-up of the film was when I, just like the rest of the world, was first introduced to the franchise. In fact, the first ever model kit that I was ever bought was the aforementioned, the, well, the titular mm. Wing Gundam that Grandad bought me from Toys R Us. Because you used to watch Toonami all the time. All the time. Now, we're not talking about the franchise in and of itself, but rather with this being a comic show, we are discussing the comic book Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, which was first serialised in the Gundam Ace magazine from 2001 to 2011. It's a retelling and sometimes reimagining of the original Gundam show, written and illustrated by mecha animator veteran Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, who not only worked on multiple Gundam shows as well as the original, but also, going back to a previous podcast, uh, Space Battleship Yamato. The series itself promised a fresh approach to the story. Now, while remaining faithful, hindsight also allowed Yasuhiko to fill in some blanks, adding his own story elements, to create more of a sense of realism and to get rid of certain other elements that he felt didn't work as well. The biggest draw of the series, however, was also its promise of showing more of the breakout and iconic character Char Aznabal, arguably the face of the franchise itself, delving more into his origin and motivations. The series was a huge success in Japan, but was poorly received when Viz Media bought the rights for an international release, and most likely due to its decision to release the origin in form of perfect bound magazines that ended up only printing half of the original books. Space Battleship Cruiser Yamato yeah. is the first one of these kind of things I remember seeing adverts for. Well, that was what I was going to ask as well. So obviously I grew up, obviously when when Toonami introduced Gundam Wing, but was, was this kind of, did it bleed over outside of Japan in any way at all? Space Battleship Yamato must have got some kind of cinematic release. Yeah. Because I remember adverts for that being in Star 
first magazine okay. when that started, which was about 1977. Right. 78. So Starburst started in the wake of Star Wars. Yeah. But then essentially became our version of Star Log. Right. And it's still running. Starburst is still running today, which Star Log isn't. All right. So Starburst has one over on it on the the thing that it copied itself from. Yeah. So that was around. The first thing I remember being exposed to in terms of Japanese culture was Monkey Got Shown. The problem that Monkey has now when you watch it versus the Water Margin, which mm. was also shown alongside Monkey, Water Margin was dubbed by Japanese performers. Right. And Monkey was dubbed by people doing that kind of faux Japanese accent. Okay, yeah. Shows are great. Right. I love both of them. And there's a level of imagination that was present in them that wasn't perhaps in some of the other shows you were seeing. There was no grounded in reality in those shows. Monkey yeah. flew around on a cloud. Well, that's journey to the yeah. east is yeah, yeah. yeah. but the main one was battle of the planets which right. we've talked about that that was gachaman in japan yeah that started in 72 yeah again in the wake of star wars in 77 yeah. everyone was casting around for something star wars like right yeah, yeah that they could put on and capitalize on the success of that film that obviously japan academy doing since yeah like japan was doing it well that. before yeah. and reading this i'm kind of like lucas must have been familiar with this because mm. there's a couple of moments at the end of this the big dog fight that leads to char crashing yeah that is the death star trench Right, yeah. Just the way it's drawn, the tense atmosphere yeah. of it, the quick cutting, all of that is yeah. straight out of style. There's a lot of it as well that kind of very easily lends itself into other kind of TV shows like Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. and that kind Particularly of... Particularly the new Galactica and Starship Troopers. Yeah. I felt owed a lot to this yeah. as well. But Battle of the Planets was this bastardised hybrid yeah. of Gatchaman, which they felt was too violent to just right. translate directly, yeah. going to what we just said before we were talking about before. So they took it, redubbed it, right. added framing sequences with um, a toy dog okay. and a robot that looked like R2-D2 right. that sent them on their missions. But Gatchaman all took place on Earth. Yeah. So extra animation had to be created of the crew of the Phoenix, which was their ship, yeah. flying through space. Right. Because the idea was they were fighting other races on other planets. Yeah. But that wasn't the case in Gatchaman. Well, that kind of thing happened... All the time, like, uh, you know, obviously, famously, Power Rangers is Super Sentai, but with American high school kids kind of filmed on the top. The the Super Sentai footage was just ported over, wasn't it? Yeah. The American interlink stuff was filmed. Yeah. But they never filmed any of the action sequences. But then even stuff going as far removed as even, like, Takeshi's Castle, which for us had uh, uh, Craig Charles doing a narration of. (laughs) Dave Lister from Red Dwarf. Yeah, but... What's weird is um, uh, Takeshi's Castle has just come back. I don't know whether it's just a a season special or whether they're going to continue it. But I was very interested because it's Takeshi Kitano was a was a part of it. Um, Takeshi Kitano is one of my favorite film directors of all time. Sonatine is a great film. Hanabi is a great film. Uh, but all of these are very gritty crime Yakuza films, which were not well received in Japan, yeah. but were huge over here because Takeshi Kitano, under the stage name of Beat Takeshi, was part of a straight man and fall guy comedy duo who created Takeshi's Castle. Mm. And he 
came back for this one. It was his idea to bring it back. He stars in it. Uh, he came back and I was like, okay, well, you know, this should be interesting. And this clearly isn't completely a, a cash grab. Completely. So I watched it and we watched the original Japanese version rather than the English narrated version. So I thought, well, you know, why not? Um, and not only is it so much more fun, but it's realising a lot of the returning characters, like General Lee, is not called General Lee. It, like, he has a name and all mm -hmm. these other kind of things. And the, all the names of the game shows or the courses or the characters that we grew up with are not their real names. It was this whiplash of culture shock that we've taken this show and just kind of done what we wanted with it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's quite... That, that has a tradition in the Magic Roundabout, doesn't it? Yeah. Where Eric... What's his name? Thompson. Right. Basically took that French show, tossed oh, okay. the French scripts out the window, right. and just literally redubbed it from scratch. Suddenly the spring dude makes a bit more sense oh, now, that I know he's, yeah. now that I know he's French. Yeah, he looks... <laughs> but the, battle, the interesting thing about this as well with Battle of Plants, now you say you can watch the Japanese Takeshi's Castle. Yeah. Whereas before you had to watch the English dub yeah. and whatever they did with it. There are now YouTube channels where you can literally just watch side by side. Okay, yeah. Capture Man and Battle of the Planets. Yeah. And it's interesting to see what was acceptable and what wasn't. Right, yeah. Like, it'll what literally be made. Princess. Can't remember what her name was in Gatchaman. Yeah. But Princess will punch somebody in the face, then kick them in the balls. Right. And it's the kick to the balls that has been removed from Battle of the Planets. Right, okay, yeah. And it's that kind of thing that they've removed. There's moments where Jason, again, I don't know his name in Gatchaman, he'll throw his, like, Atarang thing. Yeah. And he'll knock the three men down. Right. In Battle of the Planets, in Gatchaman, he slits their throat. Okay, right. So it's that, it's like they've removed the blood kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then he'll blow them up and clearly kill them. Yeah. And in Battle of the Planets, you'll see them go, 18 thing, oh, my head. <laughs> yeah. And in Battle of the Planets, they're dead. Right. I'm sorry, yeah. in Gatchaman, they're clearly dead. So yeah. it's that kind of, so it's interesting that you can now watch the original in comparison to the British dub or American yeah. dub or whoever's, I don't know who's dubbed it. But over here now, that's Ramesh Ranganathan doing the voiceover, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. He's a stand-up comic. Yeah. So we've clearly done that. But it's also, I feel like it's much better, especially now that we have the, you know, the abilities. And I think more like the acceptance and the kind of world connectedness to kind of have multiple versions and to mm. see the original versions. Um, you know, we've got, loads of other things as well like obviously loads of kids throughout the 70s 80s 90s grew up with a version of godzilla only then to find out that the original godzilla films that they watched were completely different yeah they did put raymond burr into them and... and it's great now that especially with the criterion collection box set of those Showa era films they in the name of preservation you've got both versions of the films in mm. both cases and at the very least you've got loads of historians and people even fans there's a guy i watch on youtube who's just a fan who will go into so much detail to say like to compare the different cuts and to explain why this was made and mm -hmm. the american producers who decided it should be this different and why uh what's his face from snl was dressed up as a godzilla costume doing it and it's it's a bit of better now that you can yeah compare them and see what they were cutting and what they weren't cutting all right fair enough uh so in Otacon uh, 2012, the Otaku Convention, uh, the publisher Vertical announced that it would publish all of the origin in full in hardback books, similar to the deluxe edition Japanese re-releases across 12 volumes, uh, volume one of which 
proper hard backbone on this digital filth. Some ASMR for you. <laughs> I start talking quietly. I make book ASMR. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think I've only got the first three of uh, these. Uh, but there's there's 12 and these are really nice books so they are kind of square in size they're not your traditional shaped books hardback yeah they're lovely on the shelf. yeah lovely watercolor cover uh kind of taken from inside the book interestingly kind of has bonus essays at the start kind of um an introduction uh kind of detailing about the creation of the original show but also why they went back to create um the 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 origin and of itself uh, so kind of just discussing you know why they did it what they wanted to change what kind of things they wanted to change so that didn't end well why they chose to cut some of the fat in certain cases uh you know certain episodes of the original show that didn't make it in this um and then, yeah, some of these are taken from the original magazine printing. Uh, but my favorite one here is, I don't know if you read this, but it was no. from Hideako Anno, Gundam fan, uh, from April 10, 2005. Hideaki Anno quite famously started off as an animator for Studio Ghibli, mm. ended up creating, writing and directing, or co-creating anyway, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and would then to direct Shin Godzilla. Uh, which would win film of the year in Japan in 2016. But it's really fascinating with this. He's, he's kind of discussing the idea of the tale. Now, Anno is quite famously uh, very nihilistic mm. uh, and cynical. Um, and he discusses in here is how, as much as he loves Gundam, he hates it because of the franchise and how with toys it's ruined the tale because now good and evil doesn't matter the toys matter how good it looks and he even goes so far into say as you know i even blame myself for for doing it as well um oh just cash the check ironically a couple of years after he released this uh gunpla would be released of evangelions as well so it didn't occur too much <laughs> once they offered in the chat but then <laughs> But then, uh, as part of his street, after Shin Godzilla, he would remake Evangelion as four movies that ended with him literally deconstructing the franchise and saying, oh God, let it go. Well, what's interesting about that, as well as the, the, the essays are at the back, but it's the front. Yeah. So you read the essays and then it says, right, turn the book around. Yeah. Turn it upside down, go to the front like that, and read it properly. And then you've got to kind of because this is again, this is a generational thing. You've grown up reading manga, mm. so you understand the language of manga and how it tells its stories. Yeah, and I had to kind of like sit and reset because any manga I've read has been reformatted for a Western audience. Yeah, so it is interesting to have to go. And I love what it says at the back: um, making your brain do things backwards is good. Honest. <laughs> yeah. Like that they actually say that. So that was quite. I did quite like that. It's quite interesting. So I think this is literally just a one-to-one translation of the mm. original one. But I think we were discussing as well. And again, go back to that generational thing. Maybe you know, Lone Wolf and Cub, the British versions of that were kind of like the midpoint of when manga was coming more and more prominent. Uh, it's fascinating what they were doing with that, and we'll probably discuss it more much further down the line when when we eventually cover it, where they would 
edit it and mm. remove panels to kind of make it work yeah. better. Whereas this, I think it is just a one-to-one. It does seem like a literal translation because there are places when I was reading it where I was saying to you, I reread it again this afternoon. Yeah. Because we were supposed to record this episode months ago and then it never happened. So I reread it this afternoon. And there's places where I say to you, there, there are word bubbles that go downwards. Yeah. Because that's how they write their text. So it's not without its hiccups in certain places. Obviously, they can't mess around with the artwork or the speech bubbles. So there's some stretches at times. And there's weird pauses as well, like this panel here. Suits them best. That's in one bubble. Yeah. And then if they end up a space dust, is in another bubble. Whereas yeah. obviously in a Western comic, that would all be one speech bubble. Yeah. So you've just that it's that kind of thing that I had to get used to more than the reading it backwards, reading it from right to left. Yeah. Rather than left to right. You you get into that pretty easy. That's just like driving on the side of road. Yeah. When you visit another country. You you settle in very quickly. But it was realizing that, okay, that's not the end of a sentence. Yeah. It was more getting used to the limitations of the localization. Yeah. But ultimately, you'd rather they do it like this because it is a, a one-to-one translation. Yeah. They're not messing with it. I'm sure they've had to change dialogue slightly. Yeah. Where a Japanese translation doesn't work translated directly into English. Yeah. And you see the same thing where even on TV shows and films where to try and line up the length of time they're talking to the length of time their mouth's moving, yeah. they might have to... Because sometimes what they do have to do this. <laughs> yeah. And it's literally just, we've only got so much lip flap. Yeah. But we've got to get through this dialogue. Yeah. So it's not going to be perhaps the most naturalistic line reading. Yeah. But suck it up and deal with it. Yeah. Pause. I am actually going to use that in, in future. What? You turn up podcasting, you lip flapping. Ah. Like that. Following the initial fighting that ended with a space colony being dropped onto the Earth by the Xeon forces, there has been a stalemate, but the Federation continued its weapons research and development in secret. The GMs, gun tanks and gun cannons were never a match for the Xeon's much stronger and faster Zaku mobile suit, and so, in secret, they created the first of a new line of mobile suit, the RX-78 Gundam. In response to rumours of the Federation's top-secret mobile suit, a Xeon ship, the Murasai, commanded by Char Aznable, the infamous Red Comet, infiltrates the Side 7 space colony where the suit is supposed to be under development. Their mission is only to research and gain proof of the suit's existence. However, they stumble into the training grounds of the RX-7801 prototype, which spots them, and immediately opens fire. In the following battle, the Gundam fires its state-of-the-art beam rifle directly into the Zaku's engine core, blowing a hole in the side of the colony. At the same time, the Federation's new ship, the White Base, pulls into dock at Side 7, carrying Dr. Tem Ray, the Gundam's designer. Disguised as a civilian supply ship, the Trojan Horse's mission is to carry the Gundam prototype to the Federation base Jaburo on Earth. Ray's son, Amaro, is back home, digging through his father's files and designs on the Gundam, when his friend, Frau Bo, reminds him that he needs to go meet his dad at the docking port. While en route, the whole foundations of Side 7 begin to shake and collapse in the explosion. With the Gundam Prototype 01 being destroyed in the initial blast, the Federation's top priority now is to get the O2 model onto the White Base, even if its designated pilot has been killed unknowingly in the blast. 
As Zaku breaks out of the training area and into the open, where hundreds of civilians race to ports to try to escape. In the ensuing fight between the Zaku and the army, most of the civilians are killed, including Frau's family. Amaro then spots the unprotected Gundam on a transport convoy, and spying his chance to stop the Zaku, armed with little more than his dad's blueprints, he tells Frau to get to the port before he climbs into the cockpit. With only his instinct to guide him, Amaro manages to defeat the attacking Zaku as the colony falls apart around them. Outside, the fighting continues as the captain of the white base, Paolo Cassius, leaves Lieutenant Junior Grade Bright in charge while he leaves a small missile boat out to distract Char's Musai battleship that has become firing on the colony, in order to buy enough time for the civilians rushing into the white base. Frau, who is helping the civilians get aboard, is recruited by med staff volunteer Sailor Mass to help her look for stragglers in the colony, until finally, with the civilians and the Gundam aboard, the white base manages to escape the colony. Bright, however, still in command after Cassius returns from his mission injured, is a little more than dismayed that the crew of the white base, as well as its pilot, entrusted to the top-secret new Gundam mobile suit, it's little more than a ragtag band of civilians and inexperienced rookies, and that includes Bright himself. With the Musai still firing upon the colony, the white base decides to launch the Gundam to protect it while they escape, but the ship picks up a mobile suit on the radar. The Musai has launched none other than Char Aznable, the Red Comet, who once single-handedly destroyed five Federation battleships. Ignoring orders to flee, Amro decides to battle Char but it's only due to the power of the new mobile suit that he's actually able to survive Char's attacks. Amaro has to heavily lean on the powerful new beam rifle, but once it's depleted of energy, the white base has to protect their new weapon by dropping its civilian transport ship disguise and fires upon Char, leading him to retreat. In the ensuing small period of peace, the civilians aboard the White Base become restless and agitated as the ship makes its way into the Federation base at Luna 2, all the while being pursued by Char's Musai from a distance. The attack on the colony cost Char most of his Sakus, and so the Musai, with permission from Vice Admiral Dozel of the Zabi royal family, more on them later, receives a fresh batch, but, spying the opportunity to defeat the Musai its most vulnerable, Bright decides to launch a surprise attack of gun tanks and gun cannons mid-resupply, an attack which would have been successful were they not stopped by another Federation battleship, who decide to take the White Base and their crew into captivity for breaching Federation orders and allowing civilians into top-secret Federation plans. Commander Watkin from Luna Base 2 tells Bright they'll be removed from the mission and, take the, and they'll take the White Base and gun down to Jabiro. Commander Watkin of Luna Base 2 tells Lieutenant Bright that they'll be removed from the mission and he and his crew at Luna 2 will take the Gundam and the White Base to Jabiro themselves. All the while, Char spies his chance and leads a small group of soldiers to sneak into the Luna Base as the Musai attacks from outside as a distraction. The Federation battalion rush to battle stations and go to launch their battleship, but the Xeon soldiers who had infiltrated had already taken over the launch bay and closed the doors on the ship as it launches, leading it to crash and block the bay. Char, splitting apart from the rest of the group, decides to steal the Gundam's battle data, but is stopped by Sailor, who somehow sensed Char's coming.
She tells him to remove his helmet and mask concealing his identity, which he does, but his appearance shocks her, and Char uses this moment to overpower her and escape with the Xeon forces. In his dying breaths, Cassius tells Joaquin, his former student but now superior, to let his crew go, and following his funeral and the removal of the destroyed battleship, the white base is sent along its way. But the Musai's relentless pursuit isn't over yet, as the white base begins its descent into Earth's gravitational pull, the Musai decides to launch four Zaku led by Char. The Musai in the mobile suits can't withstand the heat that the entry into the atmosphere would put them through, so when the Gundam is launched to defend the ship, Amuro is told that he only has four minutes before he must come back, otherwise he too will be burned up. Again, Amuro's inexperience is no match for Char, who is only stopped from defeating the rookie by the capabilities of the Gundam itself, but at the last minute, Amuro is called back. But when he's trapped in combat with one of the other Zakus, he can't make it back in time, and so the white base must protect itself and close the docking bay doors. Char decides at the last minute to back off and retreat to the Musai, wondering to himself just who the girl at Lunar Base 2 reminded him of. The white base burns through the atmosphere of the Earth before steadying itself over North America as the sun rises before them. For some, this is a return home, but for many others, this is the first time they've felt the heavy pull of Earth's gravity. The Gundam slowly stands up. By clinging to the cover of a wing, Amaro managed to survive his first visit to humanity's birthplace. The white base plots a course through America to Jaburo, not knowing that far above them, Char has just led them directly into the centre of the Zeon's presence on Earth and into the hands of the fourth son of Zeon leader Degwin Zabi and Char's academy friend, Commander Gama. What, what did you mean by heavy pull of gravity? Did you not mean Mavity? <laughs> Mavity. Uh, that's the end of volume one. At first, I was going to cover the first two volumes. Um... Not to give away any spoilers, but I feel like what happens towards the end of Volume 2 kind of sets the stage of who all of these characters are. One of the best things and worst things about the Gundam show, especially your long 50 episode ones, is they very much evolve as time goes by. So I didn't necessarily feel like just the one volume kind of gave you a good taste of who all of these people are. Uh, it also takes you to just up to where the first film ends. Because mm, I watched the film. Um, but reading just kind of how dense this was, I thought, well, just the first volume would be would be fine on its own. You know, you don't want to go over the 90-minute mark. Well, you also... One of the, the reasons that synopsis is so dense is this is 450 pages <laughs> for, at this point, $25, and this is the hardcover. There's so only in, the hardcover. All right, yeah. so if there was a paperback version, it would be cheaper. Going back to what we were discussing again in the Christmas show about the comics retailer and the issues that they're having at the minute, you look at that, yeah, and it's currently $20 for a Marvel trade paperback of five issues of Black Cat. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to pick up? Yeah. This for 25 which is 450 pages, telling, yes, part one, yeah, but still a substantial and satisfying read of its in and of itself. Yeah, or are you going to pick up five issues <laughs> of Black Cat that you're going to have read in 25 minutes? Well, I know these have gone up in price from when I first got them. I think they're roughly around 30 pounds now. But again, you're getting a deluxe hardback. Mm. You're getting 
really the the paper quality is good yeah it you're is. getting a big like i said it's a, it's a dense story even if it is an overlong one broken down into chunks mm. you're getting a satisfying reading of itself it's it's a good quality one you're getting your bonus features some of the later volumes have interviews behind the scenes q a's uh art pieces you know they're really they're really good books in and of themselves yeah. and really good translation as well one of the benefits of the artist having also worked on the original show itself is some of the storytelling and pacing is so good the introduction itself once you get past what's essentially the the credit sequence of the show you get watercolors which you get intermittently throughout watercolor pieces mm. but this opening section of starting with the zaku's mono eye and pulling out to yeah. then pull back in as they enter is perfect like it perfectly sets the pace mm -hmm. and that's something throughout this the pacing is done really yeah, it's, well it's spectacular it's it's like a really well edited movie like that opening prologue, like you mentioned, it's what five or six pages here where it gives you the backstory that you need to know. Yeah, that's an entire film. Yeah, yeah. In some filmmaker just hands. wrapped up. Yeah, yeah. Just, just right. This is this happened. Yeah. This isn't the story we're telling. Yeah. We're gonna go tell this story. Yeah. So that's really good, and we should talk about the art a minute. Um, again, going into the recent, I say a recent year at the end of January by now, mm. but the recent discussions that have been going on with regards to comics retailers and stuff like that, there was a discussion about the falling sales of Marvel and DC, and we've mentioned, or I've just mentioned, that this was $30. Yeah. And now Marvel's trades essentially cost this for five issues. Yeah. This is 440 pages yeah. of quite superior storytelling and artwork. Which is a testament as well, because I know... A lot of manga artists, a lot of manga is a weekly schedule. Mm. Uh, and the reason that they have to have big breaks in between, probably why this took 10 years to come out, because they do have to keep to that weekly schedule. And there's no drop in quality. No. It's consistent throughout. Um, one of my favorite favorite examples is, I mean, it's got to be tiring, depressing work. But the book, The Akira Club, which is essentially a coffee book table behind the scenes Akira book, includes all of Otomo's uh, all of Otomo's kind of commentary essentially his letters pages you know how like Brew Baker will always tell you about what he's reading and watching yeah Otomo would give a little what he's doing this week and it's so great because you'll get to points where he's like I'm so tired I'm so ill I want to die I'm going on holiday in two weeks I've just got to wait until my holiday They'll be like months later, they'll go, I feel amazing. The sun's shining, the birds are singing. And then a few weeks later, when he's like, I'm so sick and tired, I want to die. It's 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 got to be rough work, but it's it's just a testament to the people who do this. That and it's no, professionalism. There's no drop in quality whatsoever. No, there isn't. And what it was interesting as well is one of the things that one noticed artist slagged off the artwork of manga. Mm in this this entire ongoing conversation that happened yeah. saying and i quote manga is way easier to draw right you know women have tiny brains <laughs> and they don't really know how to draw realism <laughs> they can't comprehend light so they go ooh big eyes little dot for nose and a tiny mouth anime and manga work for the tiny brained females now i wonder who that was well who it was is largely irrelevant yeah much like him um <laughs> But I know he was saying this to get a rise out of people. Yeah. Because that's 
you know, it's the kind of periwinky fop doodle he is. But it was interesting to read this quote mm. and have it remembered when I sat down to read this. Because remember, I read this a while ago yeah, and then made these notes and then I've reread it again because the recording got pushed back. The art here is far better than anything he has ever accomplished. Yeah. Like, bar none. I'm it's, sorry, but it is. It's also kind of much more... Uh, it knows when to be a bit more conservative. It knows if you're being introduced to a new character or a new suit. Yes. Every detail there mm -hmm. is important. The, it knows and, when to pull back an established scene. And to be a bit more... If it's a conversational scene, it'll be much more stylized. Mm -hmm. And that, if that's who I think it is, this works and flows better than maybe every single panel being over detail yep. and, uh, and over rendered. And I love that, that quote about they don't really get on with realism. The, it knows when to be realistic. Yeah. Like the, the, the shots inside the space cruisers with everyone in their military uniform, straight out of Starship Troopers. Yeah. Straight out of the revamped Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. It's one of those things where they do enough to make it feel grounded, which was one of the intentions of the show mm -hmm. in the first place. There's enough there to make it feel and look real, but not enough to make it John Byrne. It's got that Star Wars vibe. Mm. That the universe that they're creating, despite being very clearly a science fictional universe, yeah. feels real. Yeah. And they do it without overladening you with exposition. Yeah. There's that, this is where we live. Yeah. We don't stand there and have conversations going, oh, well, by the way, the gravity here is only <laughs> yeah. one-eighth of Earth norms. They yeah. don't do any of that. You get all that from the art. And there's loads of great bits as well, as even if they don't explain it, there's a lot of mm -hmm. visual telling. Uh, I know it's more prominent in the animes and some of the later ones, but the um, the colonies and even some of the ships will have elements that rotate to create the gravity. They don't explain it. They don't tell you that's what it is, but that's what it is. Like the sequential panels of the mobile suit, its first appearance, yeah. when he walks out of the flames, and then just this entire page here of the bullets and the reveal of, of the serial number and then his face yeah. pulling back to the full page splash. Yeah. It's... Okay, take on board that criticism. There are elements of big eyes and dots for noses. Hmm. You can pretty much open this on any page that's dealing with people and you can say, all right, that's a valid, if childish, criticism. Yeah. Okay. But the storytelling yeah. is really clear but also, and easy to follow. But also going into that storytelling, do those big eyes, do those dots tell you enough to convey what that character is feeling. Do not convey emotion. Yeah. Yes. You can look at this panel. I'm on page 245, and you can tell what all three of those people on the top three panels of that page are thinking just from looking at the art. And will adding any more detail, cross-hatching anything, convey that any better? No. No. You, it's, the, it's the Darwin Cook effect. It's simple, yeah, it's but it's It's Mike not... Parabek. It's yeah. Chris Samney. It's Rachel Stott. There's a reason it works, and it yeah. works on either side of the Pacific. Yeah, there's a reason this is really good. And once you wrap your head around reading, like I say, right to left instead of left to right, yeah. it's very easy to tell what's going on here, yeah. what the progression of the storytelling is, and how manga tells its stories. And that quote really is either pig ignorant or deliberately being obtuse. Well, I know yeah. what I think. Well, this opening sequence as well, once we get past the Zaku going in, a lot of this first chapter is new for this. One of the intentions for... Yeah, the, the characters are really fleshed out a lot more than in the film. They are a lot better as well. So there's elements where... Some of it's 
maybe like a bit fan pleasy. So the first time we ever see the Gundam is when it's on the convoy and Amuro gets into it. In this, they've added in a sequence that kind of retroactively creates a sense of time. When the Zaku walk into the testing area, you've got the corpses of the old models. You can see the gun tank and the gun cannon. Now, the first time you're reading it, it's just debris. But then if you're one of the fans, like, oh, right. Suddenly you are creating your own period mm. of time and realism just from that. Uh, some of the other changes as well is Amaro's a lot more relatable at this. It's difficult to like Amaro a lot in the original anime, but here you get a very much sense, and it's only tiny little differences. The first time you meet him, he's a scrub in his pyjamas with a dirty bedroom. Yeah, slobbing he's... around in his bedroom because he's too interested in the schematics yeah. that he's studying. And that works on similar uh, similar levels. Like, it makes him more like us. He's not a perfect goody two-shoes. He's obsessive. He's a bit dirty. He's a bit self-obsessive. And then, but that also pays off as well. You know, when it comes to the Gundam, of course he's obsessive. Of course he knows how to do this. Like these little tweaks here and there to who these people are just makes it work a little bit more. Mm. Uh, the film's more focused on the spectacle of it, which you yeah. can understand. It's a film. Yeah. I would also, this isn't as asked about selling the toys. This really does, as Anno put in his introduction, this is about the story and it adds elements into it that help create this story and makes you get sucked in much more yeah and it's very easy to slow down for a couple of panels in a comic like this and extrapolate on the characters a bit like there's a lot more in this than in the film on the people who are on the ship yeah and the commanding officers and yeah. what their motivations are yeah and all of that's really well drawn yeah and you get that thing in here, again, like in Battlestar Galactica, where they lost loads of people. So they're just press-ganging yeah. people into doing jobs that they may not actually be wholly qualified for. Yeah. And but, that's... oh, right, you've got a communications degree. You're my communications <laughs> yeah. officer now. And, and she's like, what? And that's one of the, the best things about this. And one of the things that there's a lot of great moments, not necessarily in this volume, you know, essentially they're a crew of child soldiers. Yeah. And we just kind of accept that as, okay, this is who we are now. There's moments later on where we are led to believe that the Xeon are essentially the space Nazis. Mm. But there's times where they freeze because they go, oh my God, I'm shooting at children. And it's one of those things where the more you go into it, the more you start thinking, well, oh, right. Yeah, hang on. The good guys are actually using child soldiers. And you, there's a lot of these little moments that add to it they've taken on all these refugees but there's no space for them so they start getting agitated they start falling out because there's not enough toilets they have to recruit people and even bright himself who has to step up and he's a lieutenant junior grade yeah and he's basically got to be the captain bright's one of the most interesting he's the only character who's in all three of the original tv shows and he has great narrative it was actually quite fascinating to go from where i am in the shows mm. about halfway through double zeta to go back to this and go oh yeah this is how we started and having to step up and it this without the constraints of the show which had to have a fight for the last 10 minutes every yeah, episode. Every week. This is allowed to be... Obviously, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and this uses that hindsight for the for the better. Yeah, to really extrapolate on the characters. And you do, and Amaro can be a bit of a pisser. You know, he's a bit pissy about not wanting to take the Gundam out because he doesn't think it's ready. Yeah. 
Um, but it's also in the establishing shots as well. Like that shot there on page 274 of the spaceship in orbit yeah. is absolutely gorgeous. And it was only on second read-through I noticed that the bridge bit yeah. is exactly the same as Char's helmet. Yeah. Which I so, thought was a nice touch. So Char, um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of do the second volume as well, Char Aznable is one of the most interesting characters of this. And it's such a shame that he's kind of, at least in this first volume, a bit one-dimensional. Char... No, he's just the bad guy in this. Char and Amaro are fascinating characters. As Gundam evolved, uh, Tomino was very progressive and he wanted to have more and more. Tomino argued and fought to have gay characters and uh, characters of colour in this when that wasn't necessarily In the featured. 1970s. Yeah. And one of the things that he was most fascinated about and what Gundam would become known as is once we start getting new types, which is alluded to in this, new types want to break free of Earth's gravitational pull. They are linked psychically. They are the next step of uh, evolution. Mm. And that's what makes this start getting so interesting as well. So it's kind of a little bit of a shame that we didn't get to to cover that. But Char Rastable is just a great villain and he's just got enough sass to make him so charismatic it's no surprise that he's become probably the most famous aspect of this well reading this as well he's certainly the one who's the most together and knows what he's doing and it's one of those moments where the good guy only survives because of dumb luck because the mobile suit itself is so good mm. even though him knowing how to use it is glossed over by the fact that he's studied schematics yeah are we mentioning that he's a murray Sage, or does that not come into it well i feel well yeah probably well probably but i feel oh, like cause when this came out that wouldn't have been a thing but i also feel like with amro especially you get the kind of get out of jail free card his dad designed it yes he studied the blueprints of it um the zaku have been known for a long time uh but then also, what kind of makes him a bit... He's a lot whinier than he is in the show, but what kind of makes him a bit more understandable and a bit more complex in this is that he's absolutely right in everything he says. He is just a child. Mm. He is only the pilot of this because essentially he has to. And he found it. And he found it. There's a great extract in one of Tomino's novels where he describes the cockpit of a Gundam as a coffin. And when Amaro first steps into the Gun uh, the Gundam coffin, he has sealed his fate. One of the great tragedies of Gundam, Gundam does not have a happy ending. Mm. None of it has a happy ending. But the more he, the second he got into that cockpit, the Federation never let him go. He could never leave war. He could never leave the army. That was who he was. And then a lot of conflict, his conflict in both internal and outwards comes from that. You know, he had to rise and become someone different, but is he better than that? And a lot of those themes start becoming more and more interesting when you've got the people in charge who want to be heroes, but aren't. They're cowards. They send other people out. Mm. They send children out. And Amaro, a child, says, no, I can't. I don't want to, but has to. Yeah. If it isn't me, then who? Yeah. And there's the, like, the, like the crash sequence from page 334 is what six pages long and it's wonderfully cinematic and widescreen to use an old out-of-date term nowadays yeah but if that's like in a marvel book you're complaining that this is padding yeah but because you've got 450 pages yeah you've got the space to show this crash in full 
and it really does feel like you're actually there. Bits get cut off the top of it, and everyone's thrown around the bridge and all of that stuff. It's and there's no dialogue at all in that six pages, and yet at no point do you ever feel like I'm slightly confused as to what's going on. Yeah, the art's actually quite stunning. I think it's really, really good. This has changed my mind on a lot of things. And and when they use full-page splashes like that, they use them properly. There's two things in here that in initially reading it, I was a little bit confused by, but you've since told me what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's that Aramor Amaru Amaru. kind of goes into this trance. Yeah. And he senses that Shah is coming, which I facetiously said he's tapped into the force. Yeah. But this is setting up that new generation of humans the, that you yeah, were talking about. The new types. That is, again, one of the benefits and disadvantages of having a long-form story is this doesn't get paid off yet. The meeting... <laughs> but one. Yeah, and the, as the, the meeting as well between Chart and Sailor. Oh, that's and... my second bit. There's a <laughs> bit where Sailor encounters him. And they have a really quite tense and interesting conversation where she makes him take off the mask. Yeah. And I said to you, is this supposed to mean something? Because there's a meaningful, wait a minute, moment, which again, doesn't get paid off in this. Yeah. He does, on the last couple of pages, he does start thinking if that was, what's her name? Because he refers to her as a different name. Yes. So you start to get, you know... Uh, how do they know each other? Do they know each other? Mm. What is she called? She's something like Artemis. I'll I'll find it while we're scrolling through. Artesia. Yeah, because yeah. he's like, if it is Artesia, she'd be a lot older than that, because, or not yeah. stroppy. So this is more. This scene is kind of different from how it pays off in the original show, but this leads more and more into the elements later on that are exclusive to the origin. Hmm. What was added in was more of Char and the Federation's, the Zeon Evans backstory. Um, And that was one of the selling points of this, with Char being so big, uh, going into more and more detail and explaining who this character is that was never really explained in the show. So uh, Char Aznable was actually Hasfal. And he is the son of the founder of Zeon which was he was murdered and it was overtaken by the Zabi family. Char, again, be one of the more interesting characters, is a part of Zeon because, A, he believes that humanity needs to leave Earth, whether it be by force, but he's also seeking revenge against the Zabi family because they killed his dad. Hmm. And so he's playing both sides. Char is very definitely one of the more interesting and complex characters. And he shows up throughout some of the later shows as well, especially the more and more. His relationship with Amuro is like a frenemies type thing is is absolutely fascinating. And one of the, the, the more interesting things about this series. You see, the other great thing about it is the design work. Like I'm just looking on page 377. The design of the bridge... Mm. is really well thought through. It's got that Star Trek thing that the captain is front and centre. Yeah. And he's in a swivel chair, so he can swivel around and talk to whoever he wants to talk about. Yeah. But it's also got that, that it's on two levels. Yeah. Which is a little bit like the bridge in Enterprise and a little bit like the bridge in the original Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. This idea that the 
everybody's in the right place to do the function and everyone is at the captain's fingertips at any time. Yeah, it's functional. Yeah. Well, I think that also leads into the fact that Gundam was a team effort. You had character designers, you had like mech designers. Mm. And so I feel like obviously you're getting in professionals to kind of all do their bit and mix them together. Mm. But it's, um, and they do go to an effort to explain as well what the spacesuits are doing. The normal suits, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's it's just very well thought through, and you get and a very lot well of, designed. And you got a very lot of nice moments as well, where even on their way to do something, you've got characters who kind of have to mentally prepare themselves. You just got little throwaway panels yeah. of just maybe taking a breath, maybe they're a bit worried, and all of these things that just kind of add together to make this an inherently believable story. Yeah, it's it's really good character-based science fiction and again the bit at the end where the gundam falls through earth's atmosphere is an exceptionally good piece of of sequential storytelling that swapping between square panels big panels little panels diagonal panels and then a massive panel of it actually falling through the atmosphere yeah as you zoom in on it yeah. It's just exceptionally well done. Well, this scene as well, I think, is one of my favourites. Obviously, the fighting with literally seconds to spare. And you get those moments of... There's no black and white in this. You know, like I was saying, the good guys are essentially fascistic cowards. But then also your bad guys, who are essentially the space Nazis, still have these moments of humanity where they will help civilians. Mm. They will be shocked that there's child soldiers fighting. And you get Char pulled back. He's lost one of his men because they didn't pull out enough time. And he's horrified that he's watching one of his soldiers get burned up by Earth's gravitational pull. Yeah. And a lot of these other little things that obviously, you know, we live on Earth, we don't get it. But obviously you've got a bunch of people who were born in space going, oh, God, gravity's heavy. What is this? Yeah, the bit where they actually reach Earth is really cool. Where all the kids are like, wow, is that a real mountain? Yeah. Wow, is that real? That sky really blue? Yeah. Are the oceans really that green? Yeah. And it's 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 a really lovely moment. And it pays off the end of this. If you've only read this volume one, you have got a complete story there, or a satisfying story there, with little touches like, well, how does he know her? And yeah. did he sense him? And then at the very end, you've got this last bit with Sher and Lieutenant Commander Watsaface. Oh, Gama. Gama. Gama's Abbey. Oh, that's that's a big thing in the origin. Well, they that's are. setting up the next. I mean, she lives in Hollywood. Oh, it's a, it's a he. Oh, is it? The best buddies, the boyfriends. Oh, are they right? Because, the, <laughs> the, come on, that last panel. Uh... Oh, we love femboys in Gundam. All right. Okay. <laughs> so, well, this goes back to Zolta in Battle of the Planets, doesn't it? Yeah. Where they changed a girl to a man. Yeah. And an entire generation of people is thoroughly confused. Gundam is literally... This is why Dana likes it. Not because of the giant mechs, but because it's a bunch of pretty boys being incredibly homoerotic with uh, each other. Okay. See, there's none of that. There's none... I mean, Frau Bo. Which is a ridiculous name. Oh, get used to it. You get some dumb names in this. Yeah, okay. You've got some of the Gundams to call like, well, I think the bad guy in one show is called Lieutenant Hyman. Uh, you've got, is a Gundam? Is it his first time? <laughs> some Gundams are called like the Big Zock. The Rick Dom. <laughs> like that name as well. So he's a Dom, is he? Yeah. Good, good, good. But yeah, overall... I was asked, because when you gave it us and you were like, originally, let's do the first two. And then you pulled back and said, all right, let's only do the first one. There's enough here. Yeah. 
for us to look at and to give you a flow of it. Because, you know, we're at one hour, 15 minutes already, thereabouts. So there's plenty here to talk about it. If we'd looked at the volume two, we'd have gone on for another hour. But it's certainly interesting enough that I'm surprised you've not bought the other six volumes or whatever it is you're missing. It's one of those things which just like, as we were saying earlier, yes, they are very worthwhile essentially deluxe books but it's also an investment especially at 12 volumes as well i suppose it's just one of those things where i would love to carry on but there's always that about 30 pounds a piece there's always that one thing where that 30 pounds should go to something else instead yeah the ball i could be an adult um but yeah this it's it's a it's, it's a great read it's obviously something i recommend to everything now the origin itself would become huge hugely successful within itself separate from the original 70s TV show. Not only would this carry on with the full 12 volumes, a lot of it would be brand new just to this. A lot of the Char backstory about his friendship with Gama, setting up his motivations, which would then be adapted in and of itself into another anime, mm -hmm. aptly named Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, that would tell just those Char moments and finish exactly when this show started. Not only would it be so popular just to have that, it would then also span into other forms of media. The origin version of Char Admiral would advertise Big Macs. Mm. He would advertise either Toyota or Nissan, whichever one. Um, it became huge. So this is what I said to you earlier on. Is this comic big enough that they became iconic enough yeah. to advertise McDonald's and oh, yeah. the regular public yeah. would know who they were? Yeah. And that's a level of of recognition for a media property that like is disney level yeah no it, essentially it's it's kind of weird but i guess if we were to have god i don't know if, if mr if judge dread yeah was advertising mcdonald's and everybody knew who he was it's... now you've a better idea of judge dread over here yeah but that's not going to fly anywhere else just like char was big enough over there hmm. but not necessarily over here um but even then the origin would not be that Big is to just have its own miniseries. Uh, quite famously, there's an episode of the original run, um, episode five or something like that, called Kukuro's Doan's Island, uh, where Amaro falls on this island where there is um, essentially um, one of the Xeon soldiers has gone and he's mm. raising an orphanage. He's like, was what it was. I don't really want to be a part of it anymore. And Amaro kind of like, they befriend each other, but they know that each other's enemies and one day they're going to have to fight each other. So they're doing enemy mine. But famously, the animators, one, the, the lead animator was hospitalized. And so it's infamous for having abysmal animation. Hmm. And so the episode was cut when they did the films. It was completely cut. It was turned into just 2022. It was turned into a feature length 90 minute film that got a theatrical release in the origin sub line yeah. its own series with the same art style so it kind of got not only was it you know finally given a kind of a second life but it got its own feature length film great animation really well worth yeah. a watch um but yeah it's got its own line of gunpla so you can get the same model the rx72 in either the universal century model or the origin model it's become that big of a deal mm -hmm. just from what was essentially a comic in a magazine yeah it's become huge in and of itself. Well, you said they've got big Gundam models in, in Japan? Yeah. Although... Like out in the streets, kind of statues kind of thing. Yeah, so Gundam base, 
in Tokyo used to have a life-sized model of the RX-78 Gundam, this one, which then got replaced by the Unicorn Gundam. Sometime in 2011, I think, when Unicorn Gundam was getting big, it's got the new Gundam somewhere else, uh, which is from Char's Counter-Attack. But then as well in Yokohama Port, there's the moving version, uh, which was due to come down uh, but then the pandemic hit, so I think it's kind of on its last few months as well. So yeah. it's it's big enough that it can kind of sustain itself with massive replicas, and people will go far and wide and travel the world to kind of go go visit it. Is it as big as Godzilla? Potentially, just as I think the thing with this as well is one of the things we were saying is you can see loads of the TV shows and films in this, but this kind of it predates some of them a little bit. Hmm. But it also brings it all together in a way that doesn't feel derivative. Yeah, so at the time, this was huge. This is one of, I don't want to say it's the most influential anime or mecha anime, but it's one of them. It's hard to watch modern shows and not be able to trace them back to this. And feel the influence of Gundam. Yeah, I don't want to say this is Japanese Star Wars in cartoon form but it's probably not far off hmm. it's probably not too bold a statement but that is literally just how influential this is and how kind of a bigger deal it was to see the origin go back it's kind of like if you gave george lucas creative freedom to just be like right i'm gonna go back and remake star wars knowing what i did in the prequels it's that's what this is right and that's essentially how successful it was big enough to warrant this outside of the country right. literally like if judge dread was so big we would let his creatives do oh, whatever show him in london yeah essentially yeah it'd be quite cool right okay well we'll try and bring this one in under 90 minutes so sure we'll, we'll do the last email for today which is from matt prava hi matt hey andrew and michael hey matt i really enjoy some captain america but never really got behind the avengers in any significant way Fair enough. <laughs> I picked up a few issues over the years, but never anything longer than an Astoria arc. So much potential, even from the beginning, and nothing drew me in. Roger Stern's run's good. Okay. I heartily recommend that run. Stan loved his magnetic pseudoscience. Yes, he did. <laughs> he loved his magnets. He loved his magnets. He thought they could do more than they actually did. I have a soft spot for the Hulk. As repetitive as these stories got over the years, I still enjoyed them thoroughly. His initial outing was enjoyable every time I've looked at it. If you haven't seen it, Hulk Grand Design by Jim Rugg is a fun overview of the Hulk's history. Yeah, I fancied reading these because there's an X-Men and a Fantastic Four one as well. Is there? Yeah. Right, okay. I think I've seen the Hulk one and thought, ooh, that looks nice. Because haven't they been publishing like Treasury side? Big ones, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Thanks, Matt Pravett. No, thank you, Matt, for emailing in. It is very much appreciated. Is that it? Uh, yeah, that's it. I mean, obviously, I could sit and talk about Gundam all day long. Do a Gundam YouTube channel and rake in that dog. Maybe I should, yeah. And I'll film myself. And <laughs> that's what all the the podcasters do now, isn't it? They, they film, film themselves doing it. Yeah. This was good. Very much enjoyed this because it was one of them. You know, when you pick something for this, mm. either you or I. And you give it to the other person. You're not expecting anything from it. It's not going to suck. Yeah. We know it's because we don't read stuff that sucks. Yeah. We certainly don't cover stuff on the show that sucks. But I wasn't expecting anything from it. And whilst there was elements of reading this, I was going, all right, that's like Battlestar. Yeah. And that's like Battle of the Planets. And yeah. that's a bit Darth Vader-y. 
when you're telling me, no, no, the comic predates all that, and the yeah. film is a retelling of this, but then this goes back and expands on the bits from the film. Yeah, yeah. If you go on Netflix, I don't know if this is the same worldwide, right. but Netflix have all the films. Don't it's got they? All, you can watch the majority of the franchise on Crunchyroll. Uh, there's debates as to what's the best way to experience it, whether it's the original 79 show, which is the however many episodes, or the films. The films cut a lot of fat. And even at three, two and a half to three hour films, that's well, still... That first one's two hours, 24? It's still a good chunk of time and you're getting a good chunk. You know, there's obviously cutting out of a lot course. of things. It's Yeah. It, is, it was enjoyable to watch. Um, but yeah, they're on Netflix. Uh, if you want to carry on, the show is on Crunchyroll. Most of it is on Crunchyroll. Uh, Zeta Gundam, the sequel to this. My personal favourite, I love Zeta Gundam. Uh, is also on there, and then Double Zeta, not as good, and then Chaz Counter-Track. Uh, yeah, just whatever it is, even the, the shorter ones that are six episodes, 12 episodes, mm-hmm. some of them are great. They're a lot punchier. Um, if you're brand new and you're interested, the best show that I would recommend is the 8th MS Mobile Squad. It's about eight episodes long, I think. That's the Vietnam one. It's Full Metal Jacket if they mm-hmm. had mobile suits. Um, it's hard to go wrong with any of the shorter ones because they don't outstay their welcome. Right. And if you just prefer reading it, this this was brilliant. This was. There's also the manga called uh, Gundam Thunderbolt, which is an alternate universe story set within the Universal Century timeline. That's a lot edgier. That's If you want to read a gory war comic with mobile suits, that's the one. Right. Uh, but this, this one is. It's great storytelling. It's great all ages sci-fi essentially this is yeah highly recommend it if you don't like it and you don't carry on the first one's perfectly fine in and of itself the first one is it tells a perfectly fine story with little story nuggets that you know are going to get picked up later it builds its universe much better than certain franchise movies like amazing spider-man 2 wants to be this Mm. i mean i know they junk that now and it doesn't matter anymore yeah but that wished it could build its universe as elegantly as this does yeah and it does it in a manner of pages seconds and it's it's uh, genuinely a surprising and entertaining read and the fact that i've read it twice yeah i mean there was a kind of well i need to refresh my memory but it wasn't a chore yeah. to reread it it I... was it was quite enjoyable and the models are fun as well i think you can't just give credit to just the show the gundam exists because of the the models the yeah. toy models and they're very huge well it seems like the the toys go hand in hand with it yeah well that's how they start and it was the popularity of the gunpla bandai's gunpla that this show got popular again and they're still huge now they were my christmas presents they're a fun little hobby and even if you know you don't care about the show i pick up models from the gundam shows i've not seen yet just because i like the style they're just a fun little hobby in and of themselves so you know it's quite expensive hobby though they can do some of the cheaper ones you're ranging from like 15 pounds so you can get into it very easy but yeah some of the big ones you know if you are into your modeling as well you can't go wrong with any gundam kit Okie dokie, I thought we've wetted your whistle a little bit there, especially given that manga came in for a bit of a kick in recently. <laughs> um, when, and honestly, I think the problem there is uh, the comics company slept on manga. Mm. I don't think they considered it a serious threat. And now any bookshop you go into has far more manga on its shelves than traditional Marvel and DC stuff. So. Yeah. That's what you get for sleeping on the enemy. <laughs> the enemy takes over. Also, you can 
start there's never any question of where do i start with this you just pick up volume like this yeah this is 12 volumes you say of these nice big thick heart covers but those volume one yeah those volume 12 read them in order yeah you don't have to have one of those youtube videos going how to read <laughs> what's the best way to read this yeah there's none of that same with lone wolf it's yeah. however is it 27 volumes 28 volumes something like that i think it's 12 of the omnibuses so oh, however many that is yeah many that is but you start at but one yeah and progress yeah and that's pretty much straightforward anyway that about wraps it up for this time there you go tight 90 minutes we're good at this we're good at this uh we will be back next time with more science fiction but this time the crew of the enterprise journey through some kind of time warp thing and end up visiting the planet of the apes That'll be next time. Stop the planet of the apes. I want to get it on. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> all right, so we'll see you for that in uh, one month's time. Take care, and we'll Go see you all again real soon. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands To Do production, and hosted by Andrew and Michael Leyland. All opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of the hosts and no one else. The free-to-use music that closes and opens the show was the sci-fi cyberbunk trailer by somebody called Stringer Bell on the pixabay.com free-to-use website. Thank you very much to him. If you would like to support the show, you can buy Michael and I, or both of us, or one of us, a coffee. Go to co-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com, slash alayland. In one month, an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, coming in your ears. It's a date.